Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. In the preface to Les Fleurs du Mal, The Flowers of Evil, Baudelaire indicated that boredom is the truest suffering, and this idea later became central to the fin de siècle movement of the 1890s, an era of decadence in which artifice masqueraded as, or was even elevated to the status of art. The Belladonna Invitation by Rose Biggin is a gothic exploration of the cult and cost of celebrity. It looks at the consequences of wealth, the ethical complexity of aestheticism, and ultimately asks the question, is celebrity, or the mask of it, worth dying for? We are extremely fortunate to have Rose with us on the show today. Um, I loved this book. I devoured it in a couple of days. So I'm really keen to to chat to Rose all about it. And um, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, I'm Rose Biggin. I'm a writer and a theatre maker based in uh, based in London. I work between performance and I do a bit of dance and I do a bit of writing short fiction and novels, um, often exploring things like art and artifice. So, so thank you for having me. As I said, I absolutely adored The Belladonna Invitation, uh, which is out now from Ghost Orchid Press. Uh, It's a small press that's putting out some really exciting books at the moment. So I do urge everybody to just go and have a look at their titles. We're hoping to talk to some of their authors, um, other authors later in the year as well. Since you mentioned art and artifice, and, you know, I've I've mentioned also the one of my favourite literary periods, the 1890s, the fin de siècle, uh, which is, yeah, uh, it produced some really remarkable novels. Um, but what I really liked in your book is this idea of death salons, this exclusive and expensive gathering um, where guests deliberately poison themselves. And I felt like that suggests that wealth directly enables the taking of absurd risks in pursuit of sensation. And this is horribly topical. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to at the moment, this uh, having money and that leads directly to your doom. Um, So (laughs) I wanted to dig into uh, this idea of um, extreme wealth leading to a possible disregard for for like life itself. Yes, well, the poison salons were something that came right at the start of the conceptualization of the novel, like um, before the idea was even sort of novel sized. And maybe I could get to that later. Um, But I immediately knew from the beginning about the kind of dark fin world that I wanted to set the story in, um, the main character, Bella Donna, um, her name, what she would do, um, the work she would do. This was all kind of part of the texture of that world. And I think um, the Poison Salon is sort of the exclusive uh, secret thing that she runs at the end of the official salons that just felt like a very interesting way to sort of make those themes a bit tangible and a little bit um, tasty, I suppose, a sort of texture to the world. But I think something that interests me is that um, the character Belladonna works in in this world. She runs these salons and she takes on a very ambitious devotee um, apprentice. And that's sort of the perspective character. That's sort of who we see the story, who we see the novel through in her eyes. And quite quickly, they sort of get a little bit used to it. 
right? Like they, we have this sort of glamorous showpiece thing she does. Um, but what I was quite interested was showing the work that goes on beneath creating that kind of glamorous or that dangerous or that um, show-stopping event is they actually get a little bit used to it. It's central to what they do, but it's also sort of part of the job is they run these things and the business and the practicalities of running these things, what it takes to uphold that sort of glamorous edifice. We sort of see underneath that. Um, there's a moment where, uh, when the perspective character first learns about the poison salon, because she sort of doesn't walk in on day one, she's kind of led up to experiencing it. And she asks um, the Belladonna, I can't remember the exact quote, um, but, but why, you know, why people come to this, why people do this. And, and Belladonna says, um, she words it a lot better than I would say it, but she says something like, she doesn't know why. Like it's either obvious or she's sure she doesn't want to know. So there's a there's a sort of we're at a little bit of distance from why people come to this. It's sort of a texture of of that kind of world where we then see the relationship between the Belladonna, who's this socialite, this mysterious sort of character, and her apprentices. They're working it through. Um, I suppose equally, it's interesting to think that I suppose people do get blind drunk at parties and sort of die from that. They take drugs. You know, this perspective isn't one. I don't have a particularly strong position about people doing high risk things to get a high like I'm quite liberal about that um it's just that I think the extremeness of the sort of poison berries and the, the way that is a a combination of, of beauty and danger and the the temptation of it um feels like something that the belladonna is the belladonna is selling you that as an idea as well right like the novel is kind of selling it to you as a reader this is something someone's doing but also the belladonna character her job is to sort of sell that it is particularly dangerous particularly cool that's part of her finder secret celebrity and her glamour um, and of course after the apprentice character has done it once she never wants to do it again so i think there's a there's a relationship between this this thing this glamorous decadent dangerous thing ah the poison salon but part of the mystique of that and the upholding and the creation of the mystique of that is sort of where the book's territory really is i love this um this exploration of the fact that you know the they're very expensive they're exclusive you can't not anybody can just get into one of these poison salons and it, it just it raises the idea of what I mentioned in the intro, this Baudelaire's saying that it's like the worst thing, the worst misery is boredom. You know, like, is that what happens to the when you have this extreme wealth and privilege that it's it's kind of horrible because it throws, you know, the welfare state wasn't established in that period. There were tons of people who were living in abject poverty, you know, scrabbling at life, like every, to, to try and keep on living. And then you've got this, uh, you know, aristocratic class who are so wealthy that they are eating poison to try and get some kind of kick out of, um, <laughs> you know, and I just, I think that that juxtaposition is, and, and that the whole moral question surrounding those ideas is so fascinating. Mm. But also they, everyone knows not many people can get in. Right. The exclusivity of it is they talk about that. They know that's part of you have to uphold. You have to uphold that. That's part of the fun. There is a, a, a huge consequence to um, well, not just the poison salons themselves, but to the way that Belladonna behaves to towards men who fall in love with her. And the, it does force us to question 
you know, the moral integrity of this, of the world that she's constructed around herself. Um, so was that something that, you know, was central also to you that you wanted to explore this, you know, it's a glamorous, beautiful world, but it comes at a, a huge cost to some people. Yeah, well, it's worth saying that the big dramatic jealous lover moment, I, I don't think it's a spoiler really, because he comes in quite early, you know, a guy appears, there's a sort of dramatic jealous lover moment. And um, the reason that happens, the reason we have that character, his name's Lucien, um, that is a sort of a trope that we have in in culture and in these sorts of stories, like um, the novel that is in the DNA of the Belladonna Invitation is The Lady of the Camellias by Alexandre Dumas-Fille, um, the son of Alexandre Dumas-Père, who wrote the Three Musketeers and so on. So his son wrote a novel, The Lady of the Camellias, which um, was a big hit at the time. It was adapted for stage and it later turned into the opera. Verdi adapted the story for his opera La Traviata and that's where Moulin Rouge gets its plot from. So although The Lady of the Camellias isn't so um, well known now, it, it, it has quite an interesting cultural footprint. And so some of the initial skeleton of, of, of this uh, Belladonna character and the lover who comes in and how she deals with that is sort of a trope that I was looking to try to rework in a new way. So he has his big dramatic jealous moment and she deals with that in a way that she doesn't deal with it in in the, the text that I was just referring to, um, because what I wanted was to sort of have, have you know, the man arrives, and she, but the emphasis isn't really on how she navigates that romantic or that pseudo-romantic um, world, but how she navigates the, the pressures that she's under and how that impacts on her relationship with um, Flora, or, or F, um, the name of the, the, the apprentice that she takes on, who's kind of watching all this happen. So the relationship with the lover and how that sort of goes and how that ends up is um, interesting for me because of how it impacts on the central relationship between the two women. I do want to talk about Belladonna a little bit more um, in a bit because I do feel like there's a, a Rebecca vibe to her. Um, she, she's on every page, but I don't feel like we kind of ever really can say that we know who she really is. However, you've got, you mentioned F or Flora, and I, I was so intrigued by um, the, these two names that she sometimes, she's sometimes Flora and she's sometimes F. And, and there's a mask in there too that, you know, and do you have to have a mask to enter this this constructed world? Uh, who who is Flora? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. In a way, I tried to make it quite an intimate novel. Like in a way, although she's Ethel Flora, and there are things we don't know about this mysterious figure, she's also the perspective character of the book, and we're sort of under her skin quite literally at times. Like I tried to really bring bodily sensation and feel and intensity of, of mental construction you know into sort of her how she's seeing the world at the same time yeah she's sometimes f sometimes flora that's that's not necessarily an explicit puzzle that can be solved it's more done through kind of feel there isn't a secret why she's one or the other it's more how i felt in the writing which name it felt like she was the best living up to in the time and in the moment so it does change is how i suppose it's how she feels who she feels she is in that moment if she's um, expanded to feel to take that kind of flora name which Belladonna gives her as well or just is just a letter just a kind of ghost making things happen um, but I think I think in art particularly in in, in some in some forms songwriting for example or, or some certain types of writing certain genres there's quite a lot of value placed on perceived sincerity or 
honesty, authenticity, we might say. Um, so I'd argue it's maybe not necessarily about the world of art or celebrity itself that's all about masks, but particularly it's about a psychological perspective on the layers that we tell ourselves, like the narratives we tell ourselves and what we tell other people, multiple selves that exist inside of us. You know, I suppose the point is, is you don't need to be the top of society, la dame belladonna, to have secrets and to have a sense that there are multiple selves within you and who will you show yourself to be at any one moment um, to other people, depending on, you know, F is very, she's a thinker, she's a planner. It's like she's kind of a bit of a schemer, although that sounds a little bit Del Boyish. It's much more like, how can I get what I want? What do I need to do? And who do I need to be to these people in order to get from A to B? So I suppose that's sort of the psychological territory that that we're in, really. Um, and I think it's also, F is is on the surface, like we think they're going to be an entry character for the reader, I suppose. You know, of course, they're the perspective character. They're the one we identify with. But she's also hiding from the reader a little bit as well, um, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's an invite. It's to have fun, to enter this world where there is mystery. There are characters who know more than what they tell you. And I suppose I've just tried to make the book um, embody that quality as well as depicting it. I wanted that to be something that hopefully is tantalising to the reader in form as well as as well as in content. It is very tantalising, and yeah, I was intrigued by both characters. But I'm, I'm glad that now you've you've kind of introduced both of these the principal women. I wanted to talk a little bit about the power dynamic between them because they are they come from different classes. Flora is basically a servant, and um, Belladonna is you know dripping with diamonds. So yeah, like how how did you why set set up this particular power dynamic? You know, it's, class is is a particular issue here, and the fact that Flora is a servant to someone who is who stands at the very top of the kind of social ladder. The power dynamic and the, the struggle, the basic the power struggle between them was the whole reason to write the novel, to be honest. Like as I mentioned earlier, I alluded to the Lady of the Camellias and I had an idea to do a kind of goth poisony version of that and would call her Belladonna. She'll wear the blackberries in her hair, and, and that all was quite uh, came quite fully formed. Um, and it felt like an idea that was could potentially make quite a creepy short story. You know, fine. And, and the jealous lover arrives. She deals with him. The end. And, and uh, it, I didn't quite write it because somehow there was something missing. Like there wasn't quite a reason to to write. It didn't feel like I had everything that I needed. And there was a point where I was just puzzling over one of those scenes, maybe her and Lucien or something. And I suddenly thought, wait, who's watching this? Who's seeing this happen? And suddenly I, it was one of those rare thunderbolt moments. Well, you know how it is artistically, you have a bolt from the blue that's actually like a decade in the making, right? So I'm sure I would already had this idea probably, but the idea that, okay, we, the perspective is the Belladonna has a close assistant. She has a close personal someone a devotee who idolizes her and she watches this and suddenly the muscle of the story is the power dynamic the power struggle between those two and then the guy coming in is like you know that's just part of the job what does our shift bring us today oh, i said guy you know that that's then suddenly the the romantic story isn't the focus but it's the friendship or the tested the tempestuous um combination of dependence and subversion between those two women um, so in a way, making her in a sort of uh, 
servant or a lower class uh, just makes Belladonna's world even more unobtainable because then that's further that, that F has to go. Um, so perhaps I wasn't exploring class explicitly, but of course that's you also do it whenever you don't, you do, right? So that's also a handy driver to talk about wanting and desire and the notoriety that Belladonna has and the fame she has is it makes her far more distant. You know, when, when we first see her, she's literally on the top of the private box in the balcony and F is like staring up at her from below. That's like one of the first dynamics between them that we see. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say F is looking at Belladonna you know, throughout the throughout the entire book. Um, so I wanted F to set out to achieve something ob- unobtainable. And then having her as a having her background be from the the printing press and that kind of world was a deliberate decision as well because I wanted um, the Belladonna is um, she's got a very famous signature she signs her name with black purple ink you know she's kind of associated with fine art with calligraphy with as you say dripping with diamonds there's a liquidity to her as well as as beauty and and, and jewellery and so on. And whereas F has come from uh, working in a printing press is all about industrial technologies. It's about replication. It's about um, mechanical reproduction where uh, deliberately putting letters, you know, to create a specific thing that you need, which is sort of how F goes about navigating the world. And in comparison, what she sees Belladonna doing, and of course this is F's perspective, is what she sees Belladonna doing is all about glamour and relationship building and beauty and rehearsal and performance and liveness. And F is much more um, thinking in terms of these little metal blocks. Um, the, these are all things that sort of helped make the dynamic between them interesting. I feel like this kind of power dynamic works very well in stories about you know the the extreme wealth or the the search for that kind of buzz, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like the secret history and, you know, anything to do with sort of university, like college clubs, you know, like the riot club or like things that we associate with like Oxford and Cambridge or other really elite places that have very privileged people doing more and more extreme things as they feel like they are sort of above everything. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, often like say the secret history, you have someone who is from outside that world and very lucky to be in the position that he's in. Mm. And then seeing that extreme, the extremities there being welcomed into it and yet still always outside. And I think I, I find that those stories, you need someone from the outside to be able to explore that what's happening because without that the people in that elite world the the craziness happening they don't necessarily have the kind of self-reflection or the tools to actually explore what they're doing yeah i think that's really interesting comparison i think definitely the Yeah, it's such an inward looking, like we were mentioning before, is this is a very exclusive club and they all know it is and they all, you know, take joy in the fact that it is. So that they, a a milieu like that has no reason to investigate itself. Um, The first time that Flora um, goes to one of Belladonna's salons um, that's going to turn into the Poison Salon later is there's a moment where um, there's a lot of characters who are sort of sitting around swapping 
a sort of swapping pointless epigrams at each other and swapping bon mots at each other. And then but Flora has to sort of say one herself to kind of prove to them that she can play that game. But, but a game is all it is. It also occurred to me that a lot of the stories that I've read that have this kind of, you know, the, this exclusive club kind of theme in it, they tend to be about men or very masculine dominated areas. Whereas you've got not only two female characters central to the story, but also, you know, a woman running this very exclusive club. And I just wanted to sort of ask you about why you wanted to put women in those roles, in especially in a role of creating something that is so desirable and powerful. Well, women used to run salons. They were actually um, a space where women of a certain class, of course, but where women could um, run and operate spaces for socialising and for education as well. Uh, a lot of salons were spaces where women could go and have conversations about art. They could learn about things from the other people who were there where um, other institutions might be close to them. So there is actually a really interesting historical uh, bit of truth to the to the, the woman running the interesting sort of bohemian artistic decadent salon. But yeah, it only felt interesting to me when there were the, the two women who were kind of negotiating the running of it. Um, the woman running the business on her own, as I've said, wasn't enough of an idea, but having someone looking at her do it and wondering about how and why she's doing it, um, suddenly that felt interesting because then perhaps the novel is asking that question as well. But yeah, there are interesting bits of, of Finder Seekler sort of um, history and uh, there are some Fabergé Easter eggs references to sort of characters and bits of, of from that period of, from the literature of that time that I took great pleasure in sort of putting in. <laughs> the gilded tortoise did not escape me. Yeah, they attend the Black Feast, which is, that's that's where they are, which is, um, you mentioned against nature. And that's a character who's famously reclusive and he, you know, bolts himself into his own house to try to live a totally aesthetic life. And it just made me laugh to think, but he might host a dinner party as well and they, they might go. So that that's that's what's going on there is the the, the black feast is from is from um against nature and that, yeah there are a few there's a actress who claims that she sleeps in a coffin there's a few bits of pastiches of writing styles and so on um that was that's just me having fun really i i wanted to because i knew it was going to be this sort of decadent book is is i wanted to try to write it um in a way that sort of speaks to or plays with some of the aesthetic tropes of that tradition. Like I didn't really have an interest in writing a book set in that era, but written in contemporary prose. Like I wanted to see if I could help. I, I wanted to see if I could make the language part of the experience of that, of that world. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the idea of celebrity and the fact that this is still so all pervasive. Why are we drawn to celebrity? Why are tabloids always full of gossip? And Because two things are happening simultaneously. We're simultaneously trying to drag these people off their pedestals down to our sordid level. But we're also obsessed with, you know, we, we're attracted to this idea of, of fame and wealth and glamour. I mean, what's going on there? These these two different or outwardly contrary uh, attractions. Oh, it's a great question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, one of the things that we do learn about the Belladonna eventually is that she's actually someone quite like F. We learn that there are more similarities about them than 
we might have been thinking or that F might have been thinking. Um, it comes as a bit of a surprise. And so perhaps what's going on there is um, I'm trying to complicate this idea of, of wanting and, and seeking towards towards fame and, and wanting something because, of course, the um, creation of, of attainable unobtainable sort of lifestyles and that desiring is a a pull that you've identified is like society wide. We're still, we're still reckoning with it. The book is trying to complicate that, that relationship of desire and power only flowing one way. We're trying to look at the, I suppose the structural, like the admin that goes on underneath a a life of of wealth and elegance and danger, you know, the, the work that someone has to do to, keep it keep it going even if it's not you someone someone's working very hard so someone else can be comfortable well it's particularly interesting that you look at this because the the cult of celebrity and and the celebrity status that we know now actually like originates from that around that time when you had the first sort of um, opera singers that became proper celebrities and they started making paper dolls to look like them and then selling them you know, the idea of this celebrity with merchandise and with like a, a cult of personality around them. Mm. One of the, the biggest ones was Byron um, creating the cult of celebrity around who he was and around, you know, the it was that kind of like the specific look, the Byronic hero, you know, all this sort of stuff. It was created to sell. And it's it's also interesting to think about why people would want to do that at that point in time and potentially you know again coming back to the power and again if you you look at where belladonna came from you know she's creating something bigger than herself creating a story creating something to make her seem worthwhile or to make her appear more than she is yes and the all of the effort there goes into making it look effortless as well you know byron wasn't letting on that he was actively working to kind of maintain that mystique and obviously Oscar Wilde famously you know put about that he would just scribble off a a, a phrase or a book or a play and it's done you know but of course he's working incredibly hard he's writing multiple drafts he's working things up the whole aesthetic that we get from that time of of the the bon mot the epigram the witticism that feels so easy and and therefore feels perhaps a little bit shallow a little bit um cynical and that's it like um a piece of language that's or a piece of um decorative frippery or something that's that's like an atom of noble gas has nothing to do with the rest of the world around it sort of disconnected but of course this work is incredibly political it's incredibly important artists are working really hard to to work up that material you know um when wilde does an epigram um when he says for example Work is the curse of the drinking classes. The reason that's funny is it's funny in itself, but it also not only swaps the language, but it makes you re-see um, the social sort of um, priorities and the social structures that make the inverse of that the phrase that we know. And so when you flip the phrase around, you kind of flip the worldview around and, and you see it newly and you see it again. You know, the phrase art for art's sake um, was coming from a very, again, it, it sounds quite self-intuitive. It sounds quite um, like an argument for art not having anything to do with anything else. But the Fin de Cicle artists knew very, very well that art is not something that exists. 
separately to the world. It's embedded in context. The phrase art for art's sake comes about in direct opposition to the dominant Victorian aesthetic more, which was that good art should provide moral instruction. And the better moral instruction art provides, the, the better art it is. I think, I think Ruskin pretty much said that. I, I will be paraphrasing, he will have said it much more eloquently and beautifully, but that was sort of the dominant position. And Oscar Wilde, of course, had very, very real reasons to not feel that good art is stuff that goes along with the moral mores of the times. So a phrase like that, that feels easy, feels decorative, feels, feels witty, brings pleasure. And therefore, if you don't think about it properly, you might underestimate it a little bit. But these are aesthetic opinions that are really, really political. They're really to do with like the morality of, of what you're doing. Meg was mentioning continuing the story, the artificial creation of a celebrity. That made me think, well, what is the link between celebrity and immortality? Because it, it kind of reminds me of the, you know, the, the live fast, die young, the dark glamour of that. Terry Pratchett did a really good exploration of this in soul music. Um, he says, like, you will basically live forever, that this is an idea of living forever, that even though you yourself, that the entity that was you may no longer be present in the world, the idea that you created, the idea that you represent, the celebrity, as it were, continues to live on, you know, and you you do touch on this idea, and I'm trying to scare this major spoiler here, but, you know, that celebrity just adopts a new face and continues its work. Um, and I just thought that was so, it's such a fascinating idea that, you know, humans are always striving after immortality, even though none of us would really want it. But I felt, felt like that this is a very kind of modern uh, incarnation of the desire to continue after we end. Yes, we alluded earlier to the fact Belladonna is a fundamentally unknowable character in some ways. But indeed, the book is sort of full of characters who are unknowable at the same time as they tell you their deepest secrets. There's a sort of double there's a sort of double vision there um, throughout throughout the novel, um, and I, th I think I think something that's going on there is the idea of either your art, or if you're thinking in more of a capitalist framework, your your brand, right? Perhaps these are the things that maybe Im immortal might be a little strong in 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 2023 to say, but I think the idea that um, that the stories that are bigger than you. The sort of the, the effect you create, you know, the the brand, the world that Belladonna sort of creates is bigger than any one individual person, and the work goes into upholding that, rather than perhaps she could have potentially gone on for her career as a singer and been a famous singer, but then be forgotten, and and actually she's putting the work into the the Belladonna face and and um, business there. So that I suppose there's a there's a question there about. Um, you know, I think I always come up against the kind of structural practicalities and the social pressures that create this this feeling of of, of glamour, of, of of immortal power, of of the the tantalizing the work it takes to make something seem tantalizing and effortless and and easy. Um, I think something about desire and and fame in that context is um, again trying to not mention a, a, a big spoiler, but the idea. Um, you know, we're in F's, we're in F's perspective all the way through the idea that you can want something incredibly hard. You can work for it. You can absolutely give your life, you know, every thing you have to a thing. Desire that is that powerful is something that we, we see in the novel, uh, in, flowing in various directions. So you can want something and you can work 
incredibly hard your whole life and get it. But at the same time, you can know that you are replaceable. And how shocking to know that you are replaceable, but to want to do it anyway, you know, because the structures are set up so that, you know, um, someone has to be special and you'll do. So there's a, there's a kind of a conflict, there's a paradox there um, in that sort of desiring versus getting versus wanting um, that um, I don't think the novel has an answer to it, but I think those are the textures that I'm playing with. Is there a prison there, you know, that this being locked into someone else's story in the sense that, because I feel that Belladonna's singing she seems happiest when she is pursuing her the lost singing career, the career that kind of never was, the, the career she threw over in order to maintain her kind of more socialite persona. There are these moments of joy that she has, that, and I feel that she's as much a prisoner of her own artificial world. It's really interesting you say that about the Belladonna's back, backstory in opera, because she definitely tells everyone that's what it is. But I'm not sure when she throws herself into the performance, she's also looking to escape the prison of thinking about something else, the thing that happens about halfway through the book. So there's a there's an interesting out of one prison into another, perhaps. Well, as Lucy mentioned earlier, there's this wonderful Rebecca vibe of with Belladonna, because, you know, and as you just said, you know, is her background in opera, is it not? You know, there's so many questions. I mean, how do you go about creating a character who is just impossible to really know, despite the fact that she's on every page of the book? Oh, great question. Thank you for mentioning Rebecca. I am delighted by that comparison. And yeah, I suppose this is a bit like Rebecca, if she's also there. Which reminds me of that Owen Wilson line in the Royal Tenenbaums, isn't it? Like, what this novel presupposes is, what if Rebecca was always around? Um, we do know, yeah, it's interesting. Like, the whole texture of the book is about um, that com- that relationship between tantalising and keeping back. Like, it was definitely um, a line to walk as part of the writing. Uh, and I wanted to an extent the form and the style of the writing to try to mimic that experience of not knowing something. So there are things that the the book doesn't tell you. Um, and, and, and as I just jokingly said, oh, well, you know, you say she worked in opera, but that's, you only know what she's told you. You know, that's me being a little bit flippant and silly. But my, my point really is that um, unreliable information is sort of what the, what the novel's built on. And primarily, of course, we're seeing the Belladonna character through the perspective of a character who adores her for whatever reason or is completely taken in and interested and fascinated by this person so you've already got a sort of distorting gaze I think I think gazing looking um that's probably a a, a theme that pops up through the book there's this running motif of sort of eyes you know the the effect of things looking at someone looking through them seeing someone for what they are um and I suppose because that's such a texture is the character of the belladonna there are things that we don't know but there's a sense that perhaps someone knows something somewhere you know as a reader you have to you have to have a sense that the character knows or at least beyond that the author knows so there's some sense of certainty because that's a hook you can then kind of hang all of your speculation on as she says the effect the effect is what we're after she's very interested in 
the effect she has on people, that sort of the work that she does, it costs her, you know, bodily, there's hints at, um, which, which again was my way of trying to twist the kind of aestheticism of, of consumption. Like normally the, the this, this, this character equivalent has a terrible cough and is pale and it's sort of so tragic, but so beautiful, you know, the Victorian, um, found beauty in the aesthetics of, of, of consumption. Um, the equivalent in, in, in this novel is that she's, you know, regularly taking belladonna drops in her eyes and that does give you, that does make you waste away and cough quite a lot. So that's sort of literally what's going on. Um, but that, that work that costs her bodily to do in the moment, in the present, um, it's, it's a book where we're very much in the present, um, in the moment, I suppose it's fair to say, I think. Th- that's where she exists. That's what she's doing. There isn't a scene where you learn why she's like this. There's nothing that happens in her childhood. That's a straight line between then and now. You know, all we can say is what's happening in in the moment. Um, all that we can say is F desperately wants to be close to this character, but even she isn't fully certain why. It's also a very internal novel. Like I think it's fair to say we're in and alongside F's thoughts, even as she herself is quite unknowable and is sort of drawing away back from back from the reader in some ways. Um, at the same time, because I knew that was a texture, I wanted us to feel quite intimate and quite under the skin, quite close to bodily sensation to hopefully offset some of the things that we don't know. I'd like to do a shout out to A Victorian Lady's Guide to Fashion and Beauty by Mimi Matthews, which was <laughs> invaluable in keeping track of what fashions were in and out in, across the decades. Um, I think Belladonna's, she's got like a walk-in wardrobe thing, which I think is a bit of an anachronism. It feels a bit like something out of Sex in the City or something. <laughs> and that's not included but you know like a goth version of course but you know that that's not included for any kind of historical verisimilitude i don't know if um apartments like that in paris at that time had that although they had other things that i write that they have that's more in there for artistic reasons and for that reason i needed to fill that space with very plausible materials you know i wanted to make sure the details were sort of precise so the fabrics the types of minerals that are in the jewelry the necklaces that are made of like filigree fine worked metal these are all sort of real things the little tangible details are quite real which is i suppose is a way of how the book's trying to get its effect right is is if if i can get the reader to sort of swallow the specific details there then the weirder thing of this big sort of um tardis impossible goth wardrobe um will sort of feel intuitively plausible and correct yeah it's about the combination of tangible detail which you can use to kind of if if you get your seductive little detail right and place it in an artful way you might seduce your reader to swallow something that they might otherwise find a little bit strange this is a perfect place to to wrap up the episode because I think you've sold the book beautifully. I really hope that our listeners go and pick up the Belladonna Invitation, which is out now from Ghost Orchid Press. I absolutely loved reading this book because I felt like, in a way, I was back at university doing my Van der course. I felt like your book can sit next to this canon with H.G. Wells, we've got Bram Stoker, these books that examine the idea of um, artificial worlds and um, the the cost of living an aesthetic existence. So um, I really hope that everyone is is, is intrigued by that idea as I am. And (laughs) thank you so much for joining us, Rose. Oh, thank you. My pleasure.
Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.